0: good morning well you all are so far out there i can recognize many of your faces but uh so therefore i'm not sure how many visitors we have with us this morning but uh, if there are visitors you're welcome here extend to you a warm greeting and i'm just a pinch hitter this morning our pastor uh, was attending a wedding out of state yesterday and he asked if I could uh, fill in and preach this morning's message. So uh, the Lord uh, laid on my heart in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. If you have your Bibles, that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It is a clear declaration of the the ministry of the lord jesus christ i titled the message this morning a message of tremendous importance but before we uh, dive in let's uh, ask the lord to assist us this morning father thank you that you are god of all that even this morning you are in control You reign perfectly. You, Lord, have no blemish in all of your attributes. You, O God, are our only hope. It is to you that we look this morning. For without your assistance here today, everything will be empty, meaningless. It will be a chasing after the wind. Lord, we desperately need your grace in every endeavor we take. The endeavor of me preaching the word, the endeavor of all of us sitting under your word and listening to it, submitting to your word and your authority and your rule over our lives. And so God, I pray that you would grant us your grace and help to not just simply hear the word but to be doers of it and that you would humble us before your mighty hand for you, Lord, are worthy of all praise. We ask these favors in the name of Christ. Amen. The message that we are about to read is the first public message of the most important person that has ever lived. It is short and concise, blunt and to the point. It should simultaneously strike fear, awe, wonder and hope to all that heard it and likewise to those of us that read and listen to it today. No one should ignore this message or push it out of their mind. It deserves serious contemplation that leads to action. Its message contains matters of eternal importance. Throughout the years, this message has determined the fate of millions. What we do with this message will determine our fate. Today, let us hear the word of the Lord in a spirit of reverence and submission as I read this message from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1 verses 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark records that after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Who was John the Baptist? Well, as the forerunner of Christ, he prepared the way for Christ's coming. First, John prepared the way for Christ's ministry by calling people to repent of their sins. MacArthur and Mayhew define repentance as godly sorrow for one's sin and a resolve to turn from it. John warned people to flee from the wrath to come. Secondly, John pointed people to Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of the people that John baptized entered the waters of baptism to repent of their sins with one exception. When Jesus was baptized, he wasn't repenting of any of his sins that he, because he had committed none. He was the sinless Son of God. He was, however, identifying with sinners As a foreshadow of what he would someday do when he vicariously died in the place of sinners, John pointed people to Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He directed people to repent and to turn away from their sin while directing them to look to Christ as the one to pay the punishment for their sins. Verse 14 of our text shows John the Baptist being removed from public ministry. Some translate arrested as being handed over. And so therefore some commentators make a strong case that God is the divine actor who is handing John over, especially since they correlate John's arrest to the phrase, the time is fulfilled. This conveys that John's task, his mission was completed And it was now time for Christ to begin his public ministry. John the Baptist testified, he, that is Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. John is decreasing while Christ is increasing. Christ's message is simple yet profound. In Galilee, Jesus proclaims the gospel of God. This gospel of God is god's gospel it comes from him it has its source in god the father sending the gospel to needy humanity and that would involve all of us macarthur and who define the gospel as the message of salvation offered by god to all who believe that sinners can be saved is good news That this message is sourced from God and that God the Father sends it to us is incredible, is it not? Recall the night of Jesus' birth. The shepherds, greatly frightened by the glory of God, were calmed by the angel of the Lord with these words Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel of the Lord was sent by God to give this good news of the newly born Savior to the shepherds. The gospel is God's message of good news to sinners that need a Savior. This message is distinctly God's message. Jesus, like the angel during the night of his birth, declares the gospel of God to his hearers. So what did Jesus say when he declared the gospel of God? According to our text, it says that this gospel message was the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. As was already noted, Jesus is tying the time is fulfilled to the arrest of John the Baptist. We also noted that John was the forerunner of Christ. What we didn't note is that John's ministry was prophesied by Malachi, the prophet, more than 400 years before John came. Malachi says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 through 5 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God promised that he would send a forerunner to prepare for Christ's ministry. John fulfilled that. Hence, the time is fulfilled. God is always true to his word. What he promises, he fulfills, even if that fulfillment is hundreds of years later. God's integrity is, is foundationally rooted in his truthfulness. He cannot lie. Furthermore, his ability to make things come to pass or to fulfill the time is because he is all-powerful. Nothing thwarts his purposes. Jesus revealed that God's promised plans for the kingdom is at hand. So what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom is at hand? Let's first consider the phrase, Kingdom of God. Noah Webster's American Dictionary of the English Language, 1828. And by the way, if you don't have that dictionary, I highly recommend it. Noah Webster often references scripture in his definitions. He says this about kingdom, the government or universal dominion of God. The reign of the Messiah. MacArthur and Mayhew defined the kingdom of God this way it's the reign of God, whether internally within the hearts of humans or externally on earth. In other words, it's not simply an external rule and reign, but God desires to reign over the hearts of each one of us. It's also an internal reign. In the Old Testament, we don't see the expression kingdom of God. However, we, we, we read in there words such as king, kingdom, reign, throne. And these things appear over 3,000 times in the Old Testament. And when David charged his son Solomon to build the temple and gave him laborers and materials to accomplish the task, David prayed this, listen to this prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. David acknowledged the Lord's greatness, his power, his glory, his victory, his majesty. Everything contained in the heavens and the earth are God's. Yours is. Is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And head above all indicates that nothing exists that God is not head over. Throughout Scripture, God rules as sovereign over all things. MacArthur and Mayhew summarize it this way It encompasses, God's kingdom encompasses every stage of biblical revelation. God is king of eternity. God is king of creation. God is king of history. God is king of redemption. God is king of the earth. God is king of heaven. The scriptures make it abundantly clear that God is king over everything, everyone, and all history. And because of this, Mayhew and MacArthur proposed that God as king and the kingdom of God should together be seriously considered as the grand overarching theme of scripture. Let's return to our text where Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. If we just said that God's kingdom is over everything, what does Jesus mean when he says that it is at hand, that is near, I believe that to understand that, we need to zoom out to see the Ark of Redemption storyline. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them into the garden, he charged them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's authority to command Adam and Eve is because he has dominion over them. Adam and Eve's dominion over God's creation carried authority because it came from God who had authority over them. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, he sought them in their sinful state in order to address their spiritual needs. He saw and knew the sin that they committed. He restored them through confronting their guilt and covering their shame while enforcing the consequence of their sin by banishing them from the garden and bringing them to the grave. Through all of this, God acted as the sovereign one that's ordaining and controlling all things. In Noah's time, God saw the corruption of man. Man was filling the earth with violence. It wasn't just one person, but everyone was corrupted. Only Noah and his family found grace in God's eyes. Everyone everyone else refused to enter the ark of safety, and so they perished when God sent the floodwaters. As Noah came off the ark, God promised he would not destroy the world again through a flood. The rainbow is a sign of that covenant of God's mercy to man. God's ability to judge the world with a flood, extend grace to Noah and his family, and to promise not to destroy the world like this again, even though man's basic sin nature remains, testifies to him exercising his dominion over the earth and over people. Eventually, God chose Abraham to become the father of the nation of Israel. God promised to bless all the families of the earth by the nation that God established through Abraham. Genesis 12. One through three, God preserved, led, and provided for Adam, Isaac, and Jacob through trials, threats, abundance, and want. Nothing would thwart God's covenant promises because he is king of all. Towards the end of Jacob's life, God brought the small family of Jacob and his son's families into Egypt during the years of famine. And after the death of Jacob and his sons and the passing of many years, the nation of Israel grew so large that a future pharaoh considered them a threat to their national security. As a result, they were enslaved into bitter bondage. But God had a plan. He delivered them with his high and mighty hand through many miracles and plagues. And eventually the angel of death killed all the firstborn males of Egypt, Only Israelite families that followed God's provisions for escaping the angel of death were delivered from God's judgment. And after leaving Egypt, Israel was trapped by the Red Sea on one hand with the ensuing Egyptian army on the other. God miraculously delivered Israel by parting the Red Sea, thereby granting them a passage to safety on the other shore while drowning the Egyptian army in the sea. God delivered his people. Why? Because he is the king of his kingdom while keeping his covenant promises to Adam, Eve, and Abraham that he would send a deliverer. God preserved his people through their spiritual wanderings in the time of the judges. When they wandered from them, he oppressed them through enemy nations. When they cried to him, he would send a judge to deliver them. Samuel was the last of the judges. And when the people requested a king to rule like the nations, God told Samuel to anoint Saul while telling Samuel that they have rejected me from being king over them. God rejected Saul after Saul turned away from God. And then God sent Samuel to anoint David. And it was promised to David that one would... "'Eternally reign on his throne. "'Even when Israel had wandered from the Lord, "'God did not release them from his rule. "'He still declared himself to be their king. "'As king, he would judge the rebels "'and purge them from the land. "'As king, he would gather true worshipers "'and bring them back to Israel "'where they would repent of their evil deeds "'and offer gifts and sacrifices.'" that their king required. You can find that in Ezekiel chapter 30 verses 33 through 44. And when the Old Testament closes with a remnant being restored to Israel, the temple rebuilt, but not to its former glory and walls rebuilt at Jerusalem. However, the kingdom of Israel was nothing like its former glory, size or reach, like it was during the peaceful and thriving times of Solomon's reign. It's like there's this dark cloud that hovers over humanity as the Old Testament closes, and there's 400 years between the Old and the New Testaments. While God preserved a remnant of his people that were true believers in him, the nation of Israel as a whole was unfaithful to their covenant with God. During these 400 years of silence, God did not provide any new revelation. Prophecies of a coming Messiah had yet to be fulfilled. So when you reach the end of the Old Testament, if you're like me, don't you groan. Don't you long for a perfect priest. You long for a perfect prophet. Is there a perfect king? You long for that when you reach the end of the Old Testament. Some of Israel's kings like David were good. Many were thoroughly corrupt and evil. But even the good kings like David were flawed and sinful. If you lived during those 400 years and right before the coming of Christ, there would be this strong temptation to wonder, is there any hope? For the world. God's desire for a faithful kingdom of people was not realized by the nation of Israel. They were not faithfully devoted or wholeheartedly consistent in worshiping the Lord, obeying his laws and heeding his principles and declaring the Lord's salvation to one another and to the nations. They had, by and large, forgotten the goodness and long-suffering and graciousness of their God to them. They had wandered far from him, and so God sent these prophets to call them back. And as they wandered into idolatry and disobedience and foolishness, they scoffed at the Lord while valuing the false gods of their hearts and the nations around them. But even though the temptation to despair would have been very real. All true believers in the Lord would have kept comforting their hearts with the promises of the covenant keeping God. Promises such as to Eve, I will send one from your offspring that will crush Satan's head. To Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him to David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. To Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Hosea, to Micah, and Zechariah. He promised to them redemption. And to John the Baptist, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All true believers would have been looking to those promises. We can see that when Jesus was presented to Anna. We can see that. When Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph responded that God would be sent, Emmanuel would be with them. And so it is with this backdrop, you see Jesus enter center stage. Listen to his words again. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Jesus' public ministry demonstrated that he is the king of this kingdom. Throughout the gospels we read of the miracles that he performed. The demons that he cast out. The messages he preached with authority and power. His self-control. His compassion and love. His anger against those that persisted in putting stumbling blocks for belief. And we could go on. It's incredibly important to note that the Gospels record Jesus as the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied. We read in Mark 8, verse 31, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. After declaring the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus then applies this reality to his hearers. You see, if God rules, if God reigns and his reign is not simply the realm of this earth and the realm of heaven but his reign desires to be in the human heart there's implications to that message is there not and so what does jesus declare repent and believe the gospel He confronts us with the negative news first. Repent. 2 Corinthians 7 verses 10 says this. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Two kinds of grief with two very different results. One is godly grief. The other is worldly grief. The first is sourced in God. The second comes from within us, our worldly nature. Godly grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation, whereas worldly grief leaves a person unchanged and produces death. Godly grief is a genuine remorse for the sin committed against a holy God. Genuine repentance sees my sin from God's viewpoint, not from the sinner's viewpoint. In other words, it sees my sin as God sees it. Ugly, detestable, vile, evil, undesirable, destructive, Rebellious, foolish. This is why God has to grant repentance to a sinner. Second Timothy 2 verse 25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Genuine repentance doesn't try to justify sin. Rather, it agrees with God's assessment of it. It justifies God while exposing the guilt of of the sinner. It looks like what David said when he confessed his sin of adultery and killing her her husband in Psalm 51 verse 4 David says against you that is God against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Genuine repentance bears fruit. In keeping with repentance, it produces some of this fruit recorded in Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A, a person that's poor in spirit has been humbled before the Lord. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, there's a godly sorrow that comes with genuine repentance. And then Read a few other Beatitudes later. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, genuine repentance produces a new affection, a new desire, a desire for that which God desires, a hatred for that which he hates. Genuine repentance recognizes that not only have I committed sin with my body, but also with my mind. You see, it takes it all the way down to the mind and the heart level. My thoughts are sinful. My motivations are sinful. Everything about me is sinful. There's not an area in my life where my sin has not touched. There is nothing clean within me. Whereas godly grief views sin for how it affects me. And so therefore, the impulse of worldly sorrow is what are the consequences of my sin? It produces the attitude of, I'm sorry, I got caught. It wishes to avoid the consequences. It's akin to Esau's response to his sin, where he desired to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. His crying... Was not a godly sorrow. He was sorry for the consequences. Now you may say. I've never experienced godly sorrow. Over my, my sin. You may think. You know I agree. That, that what God says about me is true. I'm a sinner. But I'm not moved by that fact. Like God is. Rather, I I really want to hold on to my sin without having any consequences of it. If all of us were honest, we can admit to this kind of worldly sorrow. I have experienced it in my own heart. I practiced it as a child. We all did. Sorry I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar. Not sorry that I disobeyed and dishonored my mom, who told me, don't put your hand in the cookie jar. It's the, this is the natural impulse of the human heart. We want to excuse and minimize our sin. And it's what Adam and Eve did when, confronted by, when God confronted them with their sin in the garden. What stands in the way of godly sorrow? What stands in the way of genuine repentance? It's our pride. We want to be accepted on our terms. We want to minimize the effects of our sin. We don't want to truly view it as God does. Perhaps someone here this morning, you're convinced that you're a sinner. That you don't have godly sorrow over your sin. Let me ask you. Have you asked God to grant you genuine repentance? Do you believe what 2 Peter 3, nine declares? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The very fact that you are still alive with all of your sinfulness testifies of God's patience towards you. Humble yourself before him and ask for this grace of repentance to genuinely grieve over your sin. And to change your heart from desiring that which is evil to that which is righteous. Which then leads to genuine change. I need to press in a bit here. Repentance is not optional. There's an urgency in this matter. For in Luke chapter thirteen, two through 5, these words of Christ were recorded. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those, 18, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. O oh, sinner, Jesus tells you to repent. And as you consider this cost, No. That every child of God that's here today, myself included, has had to humble themselves in genuine repentance. And every child of God continues this life of repentance. For there is no child of God listening today that does not still sin. We desperately need God's ongoing cleansing and forgiveness from our sin. So therefore... We must repent of our sin and the gospel produces it. Finally, Jesus preached that we must believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. They function as opposite sides of the same coin. One cannot have genuine repentance without genuine faith. One cannot have genuine faith without genuine repentance. Some groups focus on repentance and make it out to be a work that they are doing. But genuine repentance recognizes that because I'm a sinner with a sin nature, even my repentance is imperfect. Genuine repentance forces me to look outside of myself to Jesus for salvation. It causes me to cry to Jesus For him to be merciful to me, the sinner. Genuine repentance causes one to believe in Christ and his offer of salvation. Now there's other groups that describe faith as a work that looks akin to getting a ticket to board a train that carries us to heaven to escape the fires of hell. With that ticket of quote-unquote faith, in hand, we go on our merry way and live our life however we please. This type of faith, however, is not genuine. There's no godly sorrow in it. There is no genuine change in the affections and desires of the heart. You see, it's not being coupled with repentance. They go hand in hand. So when Jesus calls us to believe the gospel, he is calling us to place our entire trust in the offer of the gospel genuine faith recognizes that there is no other way for one to be reconciled to god the only way of salvation is through christ i jesus says i am the way the truth the life no man comes to the father but by me the definite article there is not a he doesn't say i am a way i am a life i am a truth no he uses the definite article the it is exclusive it is only in christ and he emphasizes it and he emphasizes that exclusivity when he says no man comes to the father but by me It's only in Christ, and faith reaches out to Him and trusts fully in the work of Jesus Christ. Genuine faith abandons all self-trust, which is to repent of self-trust. You don't have any more confidence that I and myself can be made right with God. It turns from all reliance upon human effort to cover the guilt of sin. It commits one's entire hope on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. It recognizes that apart from Christ, I'm lost, I'm condemned, I'm separated from God. But through Christ, there is pardon, forgiveness, restoration, payment for sin, covering for my sin, and reconciliation with God. The gospel is the good news of salvation in christ and this good news is magnified when we are confronted by the reality of the bad news the bad news is that we like sheep have gone astray we have turned from god there is no one that is righteous before him all of us deserve to be separated from him forever to be punished for our sins in an eternal hell It recognizes that God is righteous and we are not. It recognizes that God is just to judge sinners and to punish them for their evil deeds. It recognizes that because God is just, he cannot overlook even the quote-unquote smallest or quote-unquote least significant of sins. The glorious good news of the gospel is that God... In his love, his grace and compassion has provided the way for sinners to be forgiven of their unlawful deeds, to be pardoned and to be granted life eternal. It is the good news that we can be united with Christ and experience the fullness of joy that only he can provide. God, in his mercy, sent Jesus, the king of his kingdom. Jesus, as a man, lived the perfect life of obedience to the Father. He never sinned nor desired it. He always desired and did the will of his Father. And when he went to the cross, he took the sin of sinners and died in their place. He bore the just wrath of God against sinners so that their sin could be perfectly paid. By faith in Christ's substitutionary death in one's place, a sinner is justified. And in justification, that sinner is legally declared righteous. Jesus takes the sin of the sinner on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And in exchange for that, he gives his righteousness to the sinner. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Once justified, Christ reigns in the heart of this newly born person. His spirit, God's spirit, fills that person's heart with joy understanding of the word the word becomes alive there's a a, there's this unaccountable for delight in god's laws oh how good is your law O lord see there's this radical change in the heart he gives that person a new heart he removes that stony heart that the prophet talked about and gives that person a soft heart in other words Christ reigns in the heart of that person. This, I believe, is what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came on a mission to seek and to save the lost. It required that he die on a cross and rise from the dead. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and His Word, He, even today, across the world, He is conquering the hearts of sinners through the Gospel and establishing them as citizens in His kingdom. So I close with this simple application. Have you repented and believed the gospel. And whoever's walking around, whoever's visiting, I say this to you, but I don't just say it to those people. I say that to all of us, dear church family, young people, even being raised in Christian homes. Have you seen your sin as God sees your sin? Have you genuinely been broken over it? Have you grieved and mourned over your sinfulness? And then, have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? he truly is the only way and if you have not repented and trusted in the gospel why delay today is the day of salvation do not harden your heart let's pray father thank you for the simplicity of the gospel, that even a child can understand it. In fact, Jesus said that we do not enter the kingdom of heaven unless we receive it as a child, a child that has complete dependence and trust and confidence in his parents and his caretakers. We too must trust you completely. And look to you for our salvation. Be merciful to us, to anyone here that has not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Please grant them the gift of repentance, the gift of belief in the gospel. And for those of us who profess to be Christians, continue to work in our souls that when we sin and when we wander... That you would convict us and continue to give to us repentance and faith in you and you alone. For all of us are in desperate need of a Savior. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are the Savior of the world. And so we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.